Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 1st, 2017. This is episode 1995 of the Survival Podcast. Of course, May the 1st is what? May Day, the Communist High Holiday. I think we should all, we should all celebrate the Communist High Holiday by doing something entrepreneurial today and building our own business or something like that in our lives or figuring out a way to cut a tax or something like that. I think that's an appropriate way to, uh, to celebrate the Communist High Holiday. We're not going to talk about that at all today, though, other than what we just said. We're going to go ahead and talk about things from you guys. This is the Listener Feedback Show. We do every Monday. You send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, with TSPC in the subject line. And then give me your question or make your point in one or two sentences. Then uh, drop in links or give me all your extra details or whatever. You're more likely to get on the air that way. I have a bunch of stuff today for you. Here's what we got. We have a great article on XHP Steel by our own Patrick Rorman. I'm only going to give you a link to that. It's, it's kind of a scientifically written article and I don't think it'll play well if I read the whole thing. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how the steel that Patrick uses is made. It's, it, to me, it's fascinating. I didn't even know that this was possible. Uh, I also have a, a piece on what is an indigo child and can we learn anything from this? Here's the important word, myth. Uh, I shared something on Facebook over the weekend where I didn't have time to comment. I just hit share, uh, mainly because I wanted to look at it later myself and see what it was all about. But I had a lot of people going, this is uh, dumbassery and stuff like that. It's like, you know, I, I realized it would be a good teaching tool because while the article's wit written with a bunch of woo-wooism and New Age spiritual nonsense in it, the core of it's actually accurate but not in the way they intended, I guess, maybe is a way to look at it. But what we can learn is how the spiritual myths of primitive peoples carry real truth to them. How about that way of looking at it? All right. Uh, next, I got a question on dealing with possums and raccoons. Uh, a question about trellising annuals onto perennials. I have a question about a travel cooler, like not to travel in your truck, but on an airplane where coolers, you know, uh, carry on. And so, can you something in your you know, your luggage they can use to improvise a cooler. I got a real, real simple answer to this one. Uh, learning lakes and using depth finders. Uh, a news story where you need a license to use math in Oregon if you're going to use that math to criticize the state. Uh, growing nuts in USDA Zone 5. And dealing with an inspection by the EPA on an off-grid property where there's no real reason for them to be there. They just decided they want to show up and take a look around. Yeah, all of that and more in just a bit before we get into this. Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And with Safecastle, I do mean everything. 
Check out safedcastle.com today to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1995, because the episode is 1995. Alex Shrugged has two main uh, articles for us today in the, uh, TSP, uh, hit the TSP Wiki, uh, tspwiki.com. We have Our Man in Yugoslavia, or What's Left of Yugoslavia, and we have The Gingrich Revolution and the Contract with America. Both interesting. Not sure which one I'm going to read yet. Let's take a look at some of the bullet points. There's too many to use them all, but uh, maybe it'll give me some time to think about which one of these I really want to do. Notable births this year, Jacob Krogan, who played young Spock in Star Trek's reboot movie, and Kendall Jenner, keeping up with the Kardashians and fashion model who recently started a controversial Pepsi commercial where she hands a Pepsi to a police officer. Oh, the humanity. You know, I, I, I finally got tired of hearing about this and went to check it out because I didn't know anything about this. I don't drink Pepsi. I hardly watch mainstream television. When I do, I DVR shit and I fast forward through commercials because commercials are just mind-blowingly stupid. I think it was about 2004, 2005, Madison Avenue made a decision that all commercials would go to the sixth grade level and no higher. That's actually a true story, by the way. So anyway, I, I, I looked this up, and he, here's the gist of this if you're like me and you don't know what the hell's going on. So there's some thing, some kind of protest going on. It's like a peace protest or something. Cops are there, protesters are there, but everything's pretty peaceful. Kendall Jenner takes off a, a blonde wig and, and walks out, wipes her lipstick off, and walks out, hands the cop a Pepsi, and then he smiles and she smiles, and everybody gets along. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. So what's, what are people pissed off about? This latest thing that the social justice warriors are pissed off about now called cultural appropriation, where these ass clowns have now said that the tiny house movement is cultural appropriation of poverty. These people will never be happy. We should stop worrying about anything these people have to say. They should be ignored and marginalized. Just my thoughts on that. This year in film, back to better things, 1995, Toy Story, Pixar nails it, Apollo 13, and Jumanji, The American President, and Braveheart. All of those were at least decent movies. Probably my least favorite out of all of them was The American President, but it wasn't It wasn't scratch your eyes out and poke your ears out with a with a uh, an ice pick bad. You know, if you were in a room and you had to watch it. So it wasn't that bad. And this year in TV, Star Trek Voyager comes out. The Drew Carey Show begins. Xena Warrior Princess begins. And Goosebumps. This year in music, One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Don't like Mariah Carey at all. Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex Shrugg said he liked Weird Al's Amish Paradise better. Um, I don't like rap, but I have to admit, that song had something about it that actually made it kind of catchy and got stuck in your head, uh, <laughs> though the premise was stupid. Um, I think this is how love goes, check yes or no, by George Strait, and you ain't much fun since I quit drinking by Toby Keith. I like Toby Keith. This year in video games, Star Wars Dark Forces, Tekken 2, and I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, an ethical obstacle course with great graphics. After the Harlan Elson story, which is a great read, if if somewhat twisted, actually a lot twisted, says Alex Shrug. I don't get that one at all. That's why I figured I would read it. Some of you will, and will understand it. I don't understand that at all. <laughs> I just don't. In other news, this is the year the Murrah Federal Building is hit by a truck bomb, killing 168, including 19 children. There's a budget standoff between Democrats and Republican forces, and a government shutdown ensues, and the DVD media format launches. This all makes me think of a, uh, a show we watched yesterday. I did watch TV yesterday. I did, I did the Peter Gibbons yesterday, 
not quite Peter Gibbons. You know, my, my dream is to do nothing, absolutely nothing, and it was everything I dreamed it would be. But I did very little yesterday. I took care of the basic chores on the farm, and I sat and spent the day in a total wind-down mode with my wife on the couch. And uh, there was a series on called 90s, The Last Great Decade, question mark. And a lot of this stuff was, was in there, and it's pretty good if you can find it and check it out. Let's take a look at our man in Yugoslavia, or what's left of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was created after World War I, cramming together the Serbs, the Croats, the Albanians, the Slovanes, who normally do not get along. Well, after all these years, they still don't get along. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia split up into warring states. The resale value on your Yugo fiat has just hit rock bottom. The phrase ethnic cleansing is a nice turn of phrase for what actually is rape and mass murder. It's not exactly Hitler's genocide, but it's bad. The Europeans seem willing to let these people fight it out amongst themselves, but the American public is outraged. NATO is already enforcing a no-fly zone, so the USA pushes for NATO to bomb the Bosnian Serbs, who seem to be the cause of all this trouble. President Clinton says this will be a short war. Uh, sure, Bill. Officially, it's called Operation Deliberate Force. Also, un unofficially, it's called the War from 10,000 Feet. Shortly before the bombing begins, Captain Scott O'Grady is shot down by a Bosnian surface-to-air missile. He ejects and lays low for four days eating grass and bugs and drinking rainwater. The American public is sitting on pins and needles, wondering if he has survived. Then he calls in on his radio, and accountably, this fact is released to the public. Uh, no doubt it's good news to his parents, but the bad guys now know too. After verifying it's really him, marine helicopters pick him up. They fly low and fast. Two surface air missiles are shot at them on the way back. They miss. Captain Scott O'Grady is a hero. Maybe he should run for president. My take by Alex Shrugged. America is a country looking for heroes. That is a good thing. At that time, our troops had just pulled out of Somalia. It had started out okay. We were getting food and medical supplies to the people who needed it, with minimum hassle by the warlords, thanks to General Zinni. He seems to work well with psychos. It's a gift. Then Bill Clinton and the U.N. took over, and the whole thing went in the toilet, Black Hawk Down and the rest of it. Then Bill Clinton felt compelled to do something in Bosnia. Okay, I felt his pain. I felt their pain. As I recall, he said he could resolve it in ten days, apparently by the force of his personality. I laughed because I couldn't cry. I knew he was lying, either to himself or to the public. Then came the bombing campaign. He said the troops would be home by Christmas. Another ridiculous lie. The Dayton Agreement was signed in December of that year, peace in our time, but the troops didn't come back because the Dayton Agreement had to be enforced, you see. It's always easy to start a war, but it's difficult to finish one. Yes, indeed. Um, when I look back at that, I don't know that if you didn't want what was going on to continue, there was anything else that could have been done other than what the United States did, eventually, with NATO. Um, The people that made it through that, many of them feel like only the U.S. could have put a stop to it. And I'm not really one to argue with those people. But I, I often wonder, even when we come out looking kind of okay, kind of good, does anybody actually look at how the damn thing got screwed up in the first place? It was us. Because the U.S. had more clout than anybody at the end of World War I and World War II. And it was us that created this mess in Europe. We were the ones that decided we would just rearrange borders and tell people what their country was. Without World War I, there is none of this. In fact, I would even say it's not even without World War I, without the, the, the forcing together, uh, ignoring natural and cultural boundaries of Yugoslavia. If Yugoslavia at that point had been allowed to coalesce into individual states as it saw fit, there wouldn't have been any of this problem. 
there, and there, there may have been less of a problem in some ways throughout the rest of history. Uh, obviously, if there was no World War One, there would be less problems, but there would be no Hitler without World War One. Hitler is Hitler is a direct result of World War One. Um, but you know, I, I think the lesson to me is maybe we need to stop messing with things. Maybe we need to stop sticking our nose in other nations' business and trying to be the policeman of the world. Because when you think about the fact that this shit went on in 1995, due to a war that ended in 1919, actually 1918, but by the time everything was said and done around 1919, that was all put together. Um, and it, it came to a head and coalesced in 1995. What the hell do our grandchildren have to look forward to? And what wars were the, were their, were, will their children fight in because of stuff we're screwing around with right now that we don't even see as being a war, as being a hot area? Let's put Afghanistan and Iraq aside for a minute. Just think about all the other things we have our fingers stuck into. All the other places we're arranging things. We're influencing other nations' elections, etc. What are we doing to the future? What are we doing to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren right now? We, and the answer is, we can't know. We can't know. So maybe we should stop interfering with other nations. I'm just saying that might be a good idea. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. So anyway, today, my uh, my leadoff story, I'm going to be brief on it because, like I said, I, I don't want to read the whole article, but Patrick Rohrman sent me a link to this article that he wrote that I thought was pretty cool. And if you know anything about Patrick's knives, he's he's gone to, in the most recent knives, a steel called XHP. And I can't actually find any, and it's made by a company called Carpenters. And I can't find anything anywhere, even in this article, that says what XHP stands for, but I have just assumed it stands for extreme high performance. And, and I think that's probably what, 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 what Carpenters is going uh, for here. And what Patrick said about this metal to me, and after owning several knives made out of it, um, I agree 100% that unless you do something really bad to it, As, you, as the edge wears down, it'll get, you know, as it gets, becomes more and more dull, it'll get to a point where it'll still be pretty sharp. It might not be hair shaving sharp, but it'll cut, you know, it'll cut meat. It'll cut you. It'll cut rope. It'll cut anything you need cut. Um, and it won't get any more dull. It just kind of gets to that point. It just kind of stays there. But it's, it's capable of holding an extremely sharp edge. And it's, it, if you maintain that edge, it's pretty easy to maintain. And I've always wondered what makes this steel, because basically the way I've always described it, because of the information I could find on it, it's pretty limited, is it's basically a stainless steel version of O2, O2 tool steel, okay? which is, I think, somewhat accurate. But it's, it's, it's made with something called powder metallurgy, 
And basically, it consists of the following. Carbon, silicon, nickel, vandium, magnesium, chromium, molybdenum, and iron. But it's all in a powder, a powdered form, and it's blended completely evenly, so there's no imperfections in the blending, and it's, it's then put through a process um, of compaction with a controlled atmosphere, and sometimes they remove the oxygen. They call this sintering, and you end up with a solid metal without ever melting the powder into a liquid. And apparently the Incas of South America used this process on precious metals, but the modern use of powder, metallur powder metallurgy didn't start mass manufacturing until the late 1800s. So if you can imagine, they're turning powder into a solid block of steel without heating it to a liquid first and getting a completely uniform blend of that steel, that alloy. I think that's pretty cool. If you want to know more about it, just take a look. There's a link in today's show notes. Uh, again, episode 1995, down the bottom you'll see it. it says Patrick's article on XHP Steel. It's pretty cool. G give, it a, give it a look. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about was this, uh, this thing that started kind of a shitstorm on Facebook when I shared it. And by the way, sit, here, here's the thing you need to know if you follow me on Facebook. If you've sent me a friend request and... I happen to approve it because I don't approve the law because otherwise I'd already like have run out of the ability. So every once in a while I go through and I randomly approve 50 people and I randomly delete 50 people. Unless I know you by a first name basis, unless we've hooked up on some level, right, where we've, we've talked or we've met or something. If I recognize people, I usually do accept their friend requests. And it, it stays so damn full that I, I, I there's probably people that's been back there waiting three years for me to approve it and I, I might never notice. <laughs> you, know, you might be mad at me. So that's just the way it is, okay? And when I post something on Facebook, there's there's two different ways I post it. I post it to my, like, share it to my group of friends that happens to be a lot bigger than my actual real group of friends that I actually know on a first-name basis because I accept requests at random. Or I post it to, and often they'll go to both, you know, a group, the the, for, the, the Survival Podcast Forum group or the official TSP page or Regenerative Agriculture, if it's related. Like, when I put it in a group or a page... It's an official post for that thing. So if it's on the TSP page, it's seen as material being shared by the Survival Podcast. When you see it on my Facebook page, it's just Jack. And I want to say something to some people that I've talked to on Facebook that get pissed off about this. I have a right to be just Jack sometimes. I have a right to not have to have everything in my life that has anything to do with the Internet be related specifically to TSP as an official endorsement or whatever. So I think that's how some people took this, and maybe that's why they went a little overboard with it. And before I read this article, I want to give a disclaimer. I think there's some real truth to the core concept of the article, but the, the point that it's coming from and the assertions that it makes are all hokum, uh, idiocy, nonsense, uh, pseudoscientific, spiritual mumbo-jumbo. All right, but I'm actually going to read the article because I want to talk about deconstructing things different than we usually do. What we usually do with deconstruction of an article or a news piece is we look at something and we say, okay, this is what the media is telling us, what's really going on, okay? Um, and and the, the process is the same with something like this. This is from a, a, a source called Curious Mind Magazine. I have no idea who these people are, so I'm not ad, you know, ad hominem attacking them. 
I, I don't really care who they are. I have enough knowledge about how the world works in science and real science to basically say that the concept that like children are born with supernatural powers is bullshit. And there's a little bit of that in here, but it's enough to, to, to destroy the whole thing. And let me just read the article to you. So don't get all twisted in a knot thinking I'm endorsing this line of thinking, but I want to pull the truth out of it. Okay, Here's the clickbait Uh, title, and it is, The Dark Truth. They diagnose indigo children with ADHD to stop them from evolving. Indigo children are often considered as the generation of children who will help the, in the advancement of humanity to a higher level. However, this knowledge encourages the elite to stop their mental and spiritual capacities from ever evolving. These generations of mentally and spiritually evolved beings are the ones who are to overthrow the dark and manipulative elite that want to hold humanity in their grasp. However, to stop them from ever evolving their full, to their full potential, the elite invented ADHD and the mentally degrading medications that go along with this diagnosis. If your child is diagnosed with ADHD, you should probably consider looking into this before allowing others to stigmatize them with psychological disorders that don't exist and chug harmful medications down their throats to stop them from being who they're meant to be. Who are the indigo children? Although many of the indigo children are now adults, adults, we refer to them as children not because of the age, but because of the distinct features that put them in the term, into the term indigo children. The indigo children are a generation of people who are born with distinct characteristics. They were often dubbed children of the sun or star children throughout the ages. Although they've been around for thousands of years, these children begun to emerge increasingly for the last hundred years. The indigo children possess extraordinary intuitive abilities that help them understand the world around them in a much clearer way. However, they have a strong warrior-like personality that will not allow being lied to or being manipulated. This is why they don't want to comply with a system that is limiting or dysfunctional, and they aren't afraid to show it. They're very creative and feel oppressed in activities that require little to no creativity. Their higher self-esteem and excellent reasoning allow them to feel free to communicate and confront any illogical statements. In fact, they won't respond to any guilt trips and will require good reasons for what they are being told to do. As Star Children's website notes, quote, they are here to show us that the archaic systems in schools, government, parenting, and healthcare are not healthy and must change or we will continue to fail globally as a civilization, end quote. These children want to challenge the patterns of traditional thinking and behavior. This is so because, indeed, many of the rigid patterns of behavior and thinking serve as a means of civilization, degrade, degradation, and failure. They come to set with a set of higher senses and extraordinary abilities and are connected to a higher plane of consciousness. This is why they are prone to show impatience and failure to comply with irrational and rigid standards that come with no logical explanation. The Indigo Children Diagnosis, a.k.a. ADHD, Imagine a number of people opposed to the traditional, because I said so, response from authorities. This would mean a new age of rationality and thus prosperity, but it would also mean the breaking of many of the currently imposed rules by those that want to stay in power. This is why, parallel with the emergence of the first big waves of indigo children, the elite have gathered up and created the diagnosis that would put indigo children in a locked box and disable them from ever evolving enough to overthrow the system. For this, they created the so-called symptoms that would put every indigo child into the ADHD category and created medications that would limit their mental and spiritual abilities and make them comply. How can they spot indigo children? Every child needs to go through the educational system, which was constructed to limit a person's creative and imaginative potential that would teach them how to obey authorities. Okay, that's completely factual. That's exactly the purpose of the Prussian education system, to limit the person's creative and imaginative potential and teach them how to obey authorities. 
And then the exceptional will end up in university or whatever and, and go into the little cog point in life and the selected would be. But, but the overall, the overall goal of the education system is a mass production unit to create cogs that work in the machine as they are directed. If you doubt that, you've not paid attention to anything I've said for the last nine years. Okay, so now imagine a child put through the same thing, a child being able to see the faults in it and not receive a proper explanation as to why this is so, because there is no logical explanation for that. They won't tell these children that they're trying to turn them into compliant citizens that would later allow to be led by the nose and manipulated by politicians and oligarchs. However, whatever child would do in this situation is what the ADHD symptoms describe. If they don't find the thing that they are being made to do relevant and important, they will certainly be inattentive or even impatient and thus hyperactive. What is more, the education system is that these children are experiencing lacks of creative stimulus and imagination. These children are forced to sit in desks and listen to their authority without questioning their approach or reason for being there in the first place. So how to shut them up, make them sit there and listen. They are fed amphetamines and methyl Fetaline, date, stimulant medications, including amphetamines, e.g. Adderall. This is a quote, by the way. This is from drug, drugbase.gov. So stop telling me that Adderall isn't freaking meth, okay? This is from drugbase.gov. Here we go. Stimulant medications, including amphetamines, e.g. Adderall, and methylphenidate, e.g. Ritalin and Concerta, are often prescribed to treat children, adolescents, and adults diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, states drugbase.gov. Okay? Amphetamine is a substance that many people tend to abuse. It's highly addictive and limits the mental capabilities of a person, blocking out many thought processes and creativity. In other words, these children are literally being drugged by the same drug that many people are highly addicted to and abuse on a daily basis. Why? Because amphetamine will put them in a limited mental state where they will follow the flow without being able to think if, if this is right. Methylphenidate is no different. It processes the same limiting effects Uh, and will put the mind in a straight line and increase focus on things the person is being told to focus on. Okay, so there's a little bit more you can read if you want to have a link in the show notes. Let me, let, let's, tr let's try something here for those of you that are ready to scream now because of the indigo children and psycho-spiritual bullshit and stuff like that. Let's just say, instead of calling it indigo children, we just called it gifted children. And we don't mean special in the way that they can... Like, some people believe indigo children like make a toaster break or something by walking up to it or some stupid shit like that. Okay? That's nonsense. But what I mean by gifted is... the Basically, what the article said, whoever wrote this article is not a stupid person. It's, it's well articulated and explained, and they've got the problem exactly right. What I mean by gifted is, if I'm talking to you and you're lying to me, I know you're lying to me like that. I'm one of those people that has that type of intuition. So when, and I always had that as a kid. So when you, when you tell the teacher, um, why do I have to learn this math this way? And they say, because you're going to need it in life. And they're lying and they know they're lying. Because teachers have to say that, right? They're not doing it to be an asshole, but they have to say that. What are they going to say? Well, you don't really need it, but you have to do it anyway. No, they're going to say, well, you're going to need this later. And they're lying. Your internal lie detector goes off and you go, bullshit. So now I know that I'm not going to need this. In fact, I might, at that point, I might actually deceive myself as a kid. Since I know they were lying, I might actually not even realize I might need some. I might be like, this is completely worthless. You know, you're talking a seven-year-old kid that knows an adult's lying. So what do you think would happen? And maybe it doesn't have to be this grand conspiracy. But, but let, let's just think about why it might even seem like the quote-unquote indigo children are accelerating a number. Okay, think about when I was a kid in the 1970s and 80s. To expand my knowledge base required things like books, trips to libraries, and talking to people. 
and and therefore the amount of input I could take in. And challenge, and God, this describes me in school. I'm telling you right now, if this dope existed and it's dope, it's dope. Stop writing me and telling me you have to put your kids on dope. If you feel you got to put your kids on dope, put them on dope. Stop trying to justify it to me. I'm going to say that. That's it. Okay? I don't want to hear it anyway. So if this dope existed and this make-believe illness existed, because there, this didn't exist. Do you understand that 20 years ago there was no such thing as this shit? It didn't exist. And somehow everybody got through. Everybody made it. There's more suicides in kids today than there were before they were fixing what is supposed to be wrong. The graduation rates are no better. The intelligent IQ quotient is no better. They're not putting, the kids are less capable. So this is bullshit. If this bullshit existed when I was in school, they would have wanted to put me on this dope. And it would have limited my, it would have limited my ability to evolve into the adult that I was capable of becoming. And what would you, but what do you do when all of a sudden the internet comes around? And kids are five years old and using smartphones and learning shit. And the teachers tell them this is really hard and they look it up on the internet and they figure their own way to do it in like five seconds. Don't you think it would cause an acceleration? And the more people were able to communicate and the more information available, just the, the fact that we went from five TV channels to a couple hundred when I was a kid, and things like Science Channel and Discovery Channel stuff came out, just exposing the more ideas. Now, I know some people would say, well, you all watch that, it didn't do that for me. But if you have this intuitive mind, every time you gain a piece of information, your ability to decipher the next piece of information goes up. That's actually true for everybody. That's actually true for everybody. But there are certain people in the world, I don't think they're indigos, okay? I just think they are intuitive people. Very smart people. People that just see things completely different than the average person. And therefore, they have a different view. And therefore, they can see what the others don't see. And the more information you give those people, the more dramatic the comparison becomes. And when you got a kid that's 10 years old that knows all his teachers are lying to him about what he's going to need to know when he grows up and goes out in the real world. And he has access to the entire world. Just the fact that he has access to, if nothing else, Wikipedia. What does that do to this problem? It confounds it. So if you are the establishment, and you got all these kids that won't just shut up and do what they're told, and you have a medical establishment that's chomping at the bit to sell new drugs, this is just more a natural result than a grand conspiracy. Hey, we give Johnny this stuff, he shuts his hole, he sits down, he does what the teacher says. With no thought about, well, what would Johnny be capable of if we didn't do this to him? So where does this spiritual mumbo-jumbo have any credibility at all in this? Historically. The actual term indigo children goes back to some fruit bat chick in the 70s that, 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 that wanted everybody to dote on these kids like they were special or something and thought that, you know, they could make lights flicker and stupid shit like that. But the concept of certain people, and specifically recognizing it in them as children, is being special, is being blessed, is being spiritual, is being a promised one or a chosen one or a natural leader, is very, very prevalent through all of tribal society and hunter-gatherer societies. When they had someone like this, they recognized that they had something that the other people did not. They generally were not ridiculed. Like if you were born with a lump on your head, you'd probably be ridiculed. But if you had what we call ADHD, 
hyper-vigilant, hyper-alert, paying attention to everything around you and seeing what others do not, do not? Well, to a hunter-gatherer society that like might get eaten by a lion, well, you, you're gifted. Or you have uh, you know tribal warfare going on and there could be danger around, enemies around, and somebody in your group is always astute. and Or someone is born in your tribe and they always know when somebody's being dishonest. No one believes them at first. But over time, it's proven that every time he says something's not true, eventually when a truth comes out, he knew, like a human lie detector. It's just intuitive. Well, the person that can look and say, if we move everything over there, it'll be better and everything will flow better. And no one else understands what the hell he's talking about. But eventually they've come to trust him. And when they do what he says, it works. And you start identifying these characteristics. It becomes part of tribal uh, lore. And children are identified earlier and earlier. And what did these people think? What, did, what was the, 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 the basal uh, religion of many of these people? The shamanic faiths taught them that we came from the stars. We came from the sky. So they call them star children. So this is just lore. This is mythology. But it's also valid human psychology. And I think it's important that we learn to deconstruct things like this because, you know, I am not a religious person, but I see a lot of wisdom in the Bible. I see a lot of wisdom in Buddhist texts. Taoism. I see incredibly incredible astute wisdom in these things. So, if you're logical and you deconstruct things, you can get to the core of what they are. You know, sort of like... you. You, you know, they, they had all these, these myths and legends about sea monsters. And, of course, we think that's all, you know, nonsense today. But I'm telling you what, if you're swimming in the water and a great white shark grabs onto your ass, that's a sea monster. And there's incredibly huge creatures in the sea that if you see them in the dark or the night, there's some, there's some reason behind the legend. And I think in this case, there are people who advance society and they are always rebels. They're never conformists. Give me one person who dramatically changed the world in our lifetimes who was a conformist. Specifically, they didn't do it through politics. Because they're mostly psychopaths anyway. But someone that, like, you look at their contribution to the world and say the world is a different place for what they did. Not somebody like a Mother Teresa that you say, well, she gave a lot of money to a lot of, you know, a lot, she gave a lot, you know, generated a lot of charities. Because Mother Teresa, God bless her, she didn't really change the world. The way you live today is not different because of her. Tell me somebody that you, the way you live today is different because of what they did, who was a conformist. In other words, most of you at some point during your day are on Facebook sharing information because of Mark Zuckerberg. Would you call Mark Zuckerberg a conformist? I mean, if you look at the the, the revolution in computing technology, that you, you can whether you like Microsoft or not, you got to admit it's Bill Gates. That's why there ended up, you know, by the mid '90s, there was a computer on every desktop because of Microsoft and Bill Gates. Is, is Bill Gates a conformist? He's a globalist. I didn't ask. I don't care about his politics, right? I'm just saying, is he a conformist? Elon Musk, right? Is he a conformist? Well, you don't think Elon Musk changed your life? Well, if you've ever used PayPal, and these countless, like some people hate PayPal, these countless entrepreneurs all over the internet today, most of them got their start because they could take payments through PayPal before they could get a regular merchant account or something like that. 
the people that change the world, the people that make huge impacts on other people's lives, are always renegades. There are always people that question the status quo. And we need them to evolve forward. Not some mystical evolution, just a natural progression. It's always the renegades. And the renegades are always bored with other people's bullshit that they already understand or don't see a need for. So we'll invent a disease and we'll medicate it with dope. Your kids that you think are ADHD are not ADHD. They're bored. They're bored. Send me the hate mail. I'm going to delete it. Let's move on to something else. I just thought it would be fun to deconstruct that that way. Uh, Don Lee asks, Jack, could you spend five minutes or so on possums and maybe raccoons? Details. Silent yet effective way to kill them humanely, i.e. non-firearm methods for urban dwellers. At 1 a.m. when the wife is asleep and you don't have time to tell her what's going on. Carcass disposal methods that won't attract attention from humans and other predators that may scavenge the remains. First aid for dogs that try to help and get their face torn up. My dog hasn't been yet. Humane way to kill babies when they are still in the pouch when you kill mama. How far they'll range for mating if you find mama and da is daddy nearby. Thoughts on live and let live versus making a strategic first strike when it comes to preventing poultry attacks, preventing injury to a dog that's too dumb not to mess with them, and justifying strategic first strike as a dirty hippie permaculturist that knows possums and raccoons have a purpose in the food web. Thanks, as always, David in Illinois. Uh, he says he killed a possum at 12.30 a.m., got 11 for the price of one since he had 10 babies in a pouch. I'm going to tell you something you may not want to hear, David. Stop killing possums. Stop killing possums. They, your dog's not going to get tore up by a possum, because if your dog goes after a possum, the possum's going to play possum. Happens here all the time. The, the dogs will take off, and I'll see them standing around looking, and there's this possum with his mouth gaped open, ah, laying there, and as soon as they walk away, he gets up. He'll run up a tree, and you shine a light at him, he looks down. Possums are about one of the least harmful uh, livestock uh, threats out there. It's not that they can never be a threat, but they're just not usually a threat. I've gone out to the duck pen in the middle of the night, and caught possums eating the food right next to the ducks. Okay, Raccoons? Different story. Different story. Um, once you've killed a possum with babies in the pouch, you, you kind of got a problem. You got to figure out what you're going to do there. I, I don't have a great humane way to, dis, to, 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 to kill a helpless infant animal that really didn't do anything to you. Um, probably the best way would be through a quick blow to the head. That's about as humane as you can be when you're taking something's life that small. One quick smack with a ball-peen hammer and they're dead. If you don't want that responsibility, don't kill possums that you don't need to be killing. Um, as far as first aid for your dog, train your dog so you don't have that problem. If your dog gets into it with a raccoon, you're not doing first aid. You're taking your dog to the vet. Make sure you have your shots updated, too, or you're going to end up with a dog with, at risk of being forcibly put down. So make sure your rabies vaccinations are up to date. But if your dog gets into it with a raccoon, he's going to get tore up bad. So you need to train your dog. Because raccoons will tear up a dog. Once they get into the point where they feel they can't get away, they're a vicious animal. Possum, almost no threat whatsoever. Um, as far as dealing with any type of animal like this, if you want to do it quietly and not attract attention, uh, the best way is to use traps. And uh, raccoons especially, there's a type of trap It's basically a rat, it's, it's a dog proof raccoon trap. If you Google that, you'll find it. Um, it looks like a little tube and it has a spring in it. You push it and there's a, tr a trigger. You put food inside it and a raccoon will stick its paw in there 
and it will lock down on their paw, and they can't get out. And they can't get it all out at all. There's no way to get out, and they can't chew their arm off because of the way it locks down their arm. And they'll just, when you come out and find them, they'll just be sitting there. Um, at that point, probably your best bet for quick dispatch is going to be a good high high uh, velocity uh, pellet gun, uh, right right between the eyes, uh, or right behind the ear, right in the back of the skull, something capable of penetrating the skull and getting into the brain pan. It'll make some noise. It won't make much noise. You need to do it at somewhat of a distance. Don't try pressing the gun up against it, uh, even with a chain uh, holding them down. Uh, these animals can be quite vicious when they're cornered and they know they're about to meet their maker. They'll fight with everything to survive, wouldn't you, if it was you? That's probably your best way. Um, your other option is carbon monoxide poisoning. If you do a live catch trap, uh, you can build a box. The trap goes inside. You hook your... Uh, Your tailpipe up to it after you know you let the car run for a little bit so that it runs clean, uh, and then you uh, you vent that in there and that will put them to sleep. Uh, a lot of people that do taxidermy courses that want animals with no holes in them for their mounts for their first mounts that will will trap animals for taxidermy and put them down that way. I don't like that idea, but it does work. I don't know that it's necessarily painless, or I, mean, I just have to think. You know, breathing in car fumes can't be as odorless and tasteless as as, as uh, claimed. I'm sure you could rig something up like that, and basically a gas chamber using dry ice uh, with CO2, and that probably would be less uh, traumatic. Um, but a good shot between the eyes uh, is the way to go from a pellet gun. And again, it'll make some noise. It won't make enough noise to really bother anything, especially a single uh, one going off. Um, I, I really kind of challenge you to not kill possums. There's no real need to do that. Uh, when you say poultry, most people, when they say poultry, mean chickens. If you have a good chicken house that you close up at night, they can't get in there anyway, and that's a good first line of defense. Um, we, when we kept chickens and we actually closed up the barn every night, we never lost a single bird to anything in all the years that we had them. Uh, so, you know, good security is probably your first step. Um, as far as getting rid of carcasses of any animal that you don't want to, to consume, uh, the easiest thing to do, throw it in a garbage bag, throw it in the freezer. Just throw it in your freezer. On garbage day, take it out that morning, throw it in the garbage can. It'll go away frozen in a block. You'll never have to have any problems with it ever again. It'll be gone. If you put it in a garbage bag and throw it in your garbage can, it'll stink to high heaven by the time garbage day comes. Um, but again, I'm going to... Really kind of, again, mention that I do not see raccoons as a big problem for poultry owners. I have heard from people say that they've had possums that have killed chickens. Um, I, I wonder if they really do, though. Because here's, here's how that can happen. So somebody kills your chicken, you go out and find dead chicken remains, you see a possum eating it. Well, there's no doubt if there's a, a bloody remains of a chicken there, Um, that that possum will eat it. it, it it'll absolutely eat it. Because it's, it's carrion. Possums eat carrion. So, you know, raccoon comes in, rips the head off your chicken, eats its favorite parts of it, leaves. Possum shows up. Oh, possum did it. I have I, never seen video of a possum killing a chicken. I, I, I'm sure they're physically capable. They just generally don't. Uh, from my experience. So... You know, kind of think about your need to be doing that. They're pretty cool creatures. I've never eaten possum. Um, I've heard it's okay. I've never really had enough desire to know 
to, uh, to, to kill one uh, for, for that purpose or to even one that has been killed to clean it. I, I probably would if the opportunity presented itself at this point just because I'd be curious. Um, but I'll tell you that they were worth so little as fur pelt. They, I think we got like two bucks for them when I was a kid and I ran a trap line back then that I did not feel the need to ever kill a possum. And I had a stick with like a, a, a like a, had like a V on it. And whenever I did by accident end up with a possum in one of my coal spring traps, I would pin it down and they usually would just, you know, pretend to be dead. And I would step on the trap with two feet and They're about the only thing I've ever been willing to let go from a coil spring trap, you know, and not fear getting bit, even with a control stick. And I, I never, never killed any of them, even when I trapped them. I let them go. And that's why I can tell you for a fact that most of the time when an animal's trapped in a lake hole trap, they do pretty, they do just fine once they're released. And you probably won't get that one in, in a trap again because it's learned. Um, so I just don't know. Raccoon? Raccoon's pretty good at eating stuff, man. Um, if you're gonna, if you're gonna kill raccoons, uh, you can take something's life. Consider making use of the meat, if not the meat and the pelt, depending on the time of the year. Um, go on YouTube and Google remove, not Google, search YouTube for remove raccoon kernels. There's four glands, one in each leg, that need to come out. And if you don't take them out, they make things taste really nasty. And when you take them out, use care, don't cut them with your knife. Um, and then I say the same thing. When you shoot an animal like that and you're going to use it, skin it. Put all of the stuff you don't want in a garbage bag. Put that garbage bag in another garbage bag. I should have said that the first time. Double double garbage bag. Tie it hot. Throw it in the deep freezer. Make yourself a note on your phone or whatever for garbage day so you don't forget. Throw the damn thing in the garbage can and be on with your life. Um, as far as attracting scavengers and predators and stuff like that, um, in many situations, if you have larger property, they're there anyway. And uh, just dumping stuff is, is really not a big problem. Um, You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it anywhere near your holding facilities or anything like that. But most um, people that I know that own large farms and things like that, you know, we're talking hundreds or thousands of acres. They shoot a deer or something. They just throw whatever they don't use in the four wheeler and they take it way off to the back side of the property somewhere and dump it and, and let the coyotes have it and, and not too much worried about it. Small homesteads like mine, I wouldn't do that because you, you do run the risk of like training your your, your predators. All right, I hope that helps. Sorry if that's not what you wanted to hear on the possums, but there's just really, in my view, not much of a need for killing them. You also need to check into your local laws. Uh, in many states, raccoons are considered fur bearers, and uh, they have specific seasons that they can be killed and not killed, and you could be in violation of the law. I'm not throwing the law in your face. I'm just saying you may want to know what it is, and I believe possums follow under that protection uh, in some states as well, and in other states they're just considered vermin and they can be shot on sight. So you need to know that. So if you're doing this and it is the outbounds of the law, you're at least aware of it and can take proper precautions from Johnny Law. Let's go to something totally different. Uh, this comes from Brian. Brian says, is it okay to allow my zucchini plant to vine up a pomegranate tree? Details, I'm in zone 8-9, Jacksonville, Florida, and planted a zucchini about two feet away from my four-year-old pomegranate. Figuring the tree would protect it from harsh summer sun. The zucchini is doing fantastic, but it's now trying to climb up through the lower branches of my tree. Should I let it go or try to prune those specific vines out of the way? How would I go about pruning if that is that direction you recommend? As always, thanks for all you do, Brian. Well... Let's start with how do you prune a vine off of a squash plant? Take something sharp and cut it. There's nothing special. You, you, it, there's nothing to worry about. Um, now, should you let this thing trellis onto a pomegranate? 
I don't know. How big's the pomegranate? Four years old? How, I mean, I have pomegranates that are almost four years old here and they're pretty small. Jacksonville, Florida is a different climate. Pomegranates love Jacksonville, Florida. Is the tree big enough to support the vine without being detrimentally affected by it? If so, sure, let it climb up it. Um, four years old, I'm going to go out of limb and say it probably is a bit small for that. It's going to probably weigh down the branches, disturb the tree's growth, and you probably shouldn't let it do it. There's other options, though. First of all, I'm wondering, is this zucchini or is this like trombuccino zucchini? Because most zucchini plants are really more of a bush than a vine. They don't go very long. You know, they kind of have a little bit of a vine, but it's not like you're ta- like because you said you planted it uh, two feet away. So I, I, you know, if this is a a true zucchini, a typical bush zucchini where the vine's going to only go up a little bit there, that's fine. If it's going to be, if it's like a trombuccino or somewhere, like it's going to throw out vines that are eight feet long and wrap up and twine in there, you, you probably don't want it in there. But the funny thing about vines is they go wherever you tell them to. I had some uh, some pumpkins that I planted on my property in Arkansas. And by the time the season was over, I think the longest vines were 25 feet or more. And I had these two berms. So when they started growing, I just like started training them in between the berms. And they got all the way to one berm. And I just trained them all the way back. So they went all the way one and they went back and they went like halfway back like a zigzag. And all I did was just move the vine and like set a rock against it or whatever. So your other option, if you don't want to give up the growth and you want the productivity to come off them, but the tree's not ready yet, just just tra- change the, the, the direction the vine's growing. Now what's probably happening is your solar aspect is causing that vine to go in that direction. That's where it's seeking the sun. So you might have to stay on this, but I mean, it, this is not difficult. This is, you, you know, Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Sandy soil. It's really soft. It's easy to dig everywhere. You can put a hole, you know, put a pole or a stick in anything. You probably go get a handful of, uh, of scrap twigs out of the, out of the woods, put a little sharpen edge on them, like pegs, and just use them like pegs and just train that vine wherever you want it to go. That's what I would do. Um, but again, I'd be interested to know what exact variety you have of zucchini that's doing a lot of vining. That sounds more, again, like a trombuccino, which if that's what you have, the reason I ask is you can pick those young as zucchinis, mid-sized as zucchinis, or you can let them go full term into a winter squash. They're a pretty cool plant. Uh, again, they're called trombuccino zucchini, and uh, they're definitely worth growing. Let's take another one. Um, this next one is from John in Orlando. He says, are there insulated bladders that can be used to line a box and make an improvised cooler? Background, I'm a young single business professional who often travels on short-term notice for work. I sometimes have the ability to take weekends or vacation time to extend my trip, fit in a small vacation, whether it be camping or sightseeing. I'm looking for a way to easily store improvisable cooler where storage space is minimal and easily fits and carry on luggage. Are there other things you might suggest, uh, such as compact stoves, whose gas tank I could purchase on site? Thanks for your help and hard work. Jack. Okay, so let's start with the first one, the stove thing. What I what I would primarily recommend is that you just forget about stoves um, and you cook with fire, uh, a couple rocks, maybe a small grate that you want to be able to put things on and you carry maybe a small uh, cook set is about all you would need. Or, or something like a solo stove uh, would be a really good investment. It's pretty small. Um, it would allow you to burn wood, but have it all 100% contained if you're like at campsites or wherever where they don't allow open fires. Um, I don't think you'd have any trouble using something like a solo stove. So I would say if that's a, a concern, maybe look at something like a solo stove. Um, next up, 
on the cooler. Get a collapsible cooler. Um, we now I, we now carry on luggage. I, I don't know. You might have to get a smaller one than, one than the one we use. But I have a link in the show notes for a 40 can collapsible cooler. We have this cooler. It's made by Coleman. We go to uh, Sanibel, Florida, often. I would say out of the last 12 years, we've gone 10 times, and we spent a lot of time at the beach there. And we wanted a cooler that we could take with us on the airplane without paying extra for it. So I carry now again I. I carry a wheel, you know, double wheeled uh, check bag, and I fold it flat and just stick it in there and close it up. And we get to we get to Sanibel and we you know get ice at the hotel and we go out to the beach with it all the time. And you know it's not it's not like a, a freaking you know a hard walled Yeti or something like that. It's ability to hold ice, but it certainly keeps food uh, cool, keeps drinks cool, and, and I think that's probably your best bet um, if that's going to put you into the place. Of having to, uh, of having to, uh, what do you call it? Like check your bag, and it's going to cost you more money than it's worth. Frankly, man, um, most grocery stores sell the pretty thick-walled styrofoam coolers for like five bucks. Uh, I just build that into your cost of of your little recreation, and just give you know, so you don't feel bad about it. Find somebody to just give it to at the end of your little trip. You know, if you're camping or you're going on sightseeing or stuff like that, or to like you know some place like that, there's always other people around. And we've we did we, before we decided, hey, let's just get a collapsible cooler. That's what we would do. We would land and we always go to the grocery store on the way to the hotel. That way we have food and we don't have to eat all our meals out and we save money on our trips. And we would just pick up one of those styrofoam coolers and I would use it for the whole trip. And again, I'm talking about like when you go to grocery stores, there's like sometimes they have really super cheap ones that are like three bucks or two fifty, and they're garbage. But then they make the ones that are like inch thick styrofoam. Those are pretty damn good. They're usually about five dollars. And yeah, we're there for a week. We'd have it, and toward the end of the week, we'd be like, "Hey, man, are you you know you staying here a while yet or whatever?" You're like, "Yeah, we're here for the rest of the week. Would you like this cooler? We just bought it for a while. We're here. Yeah, sure. Or you guys local? Yeah, you. Hey, we're gonna." Throw this away. Do you want? Oh yeah, we'd always find somebody to take it. Always find somebody to take it. Um, I even one year uh, just to get a before I found a good travel rod. I got tired of carrying a big rod case, and I took my reels and I went to a sporting goods store and I bought two fishing poles. One was like ten dollars and one was like eight bucks. You know they were good enough for for surf fishing, and I just left them on the patio when I left. Like I'm not going to spend fifty dollars to bring. $18 worth of fishing rods home. So you can kind of think that way too. I, I think a better long-term solution is something collapsible, but that's what I would look for. It's something collapsible that will fit in there. Inflatable panels, making one out of a cardboard box, I I just think you're, you're, you're making something complicated that doesn't have to be complicated. Again, you could take a look at the one that we bought. It might be a bit big for a carry-on uh, luggage bag. I don't know how densely packed your carry-on bag is. Um, I certainly understand carry-on bags. It's not just about economics. It's about convenience. Um, I, if I could have back every minute of my life that I've spent standing at a turnstile waiting for my freaking bag, uh, I'd be pretty happy about it. So I, I get you know being able to just walk off the plane and go. Uh, so I get not giving that up. But that's what I would look for, some sort of collapsible um, uh, cooler. All right, so this one has some location-specific stuff that applies to me, but I'm going to try to make it apply as universally as I can by answer. This comes from Jeremy. Jeremy says, um, 
uh, I recently got a boat, a 2002 Aluminum Craft Invader 185. Do you have any advice or tips on reading and using a fish finder in the boat? has a large HDSI 5 down image. Uh, any advice on tips for Joe Pool and Grapevine for sa Sandys and Crappie? I've had some luck under the bridge and Lynn Creek and Denton Creek on Grapevine using slabs, rattlers, minnows, jigs. A lot of experience fishing from the bank, rivers, and small ponds. I've been out with guides fishing mostly for striper. It's been a learning curve and going to try and get a guide trip set up with Johnny's Guide Service at Eagle Mountain Lake. He does teaching trips, and I've read a lot of good reports on the Texas Fishing Forum about him. Thanks for all you do. Let's start out with my most disappointing news for you. Uh, I checked into Johnny's Guide Service because I would like to hire a guide to teach me Eagle Mountain Lake, and I don't think he's in business anymore. So, yeah. When I saw his site, had a copyright date of 2011 on it. I thought a lot of things happened to fishing guides over that many years. Uh, I will tell you, anybody in this area that would like to learn Grapevine Lake and would like to have a great experience fishing for sand bass, the guy you want to get in touch with is Omar Cotter, and the, the his site is Luck of the Irish, Luck O the Irish Guide Service. He also guides on Tawakany for stripers and sand bass. He's very, very good. He's a, he's a gentleman I met through my friend Hal Bod, uh, and he's he's still in business. I think he works full-time for Bass Pro Shops, actually, and like his guide business is a side business, but he's, he's a serious guy when it comes to... Uh, his trips and uh, he does he does a great job for his customers and he can definitely teach you grapevine i know almost nothing about grapevine i've been on grapevine one time with omar uh, and that was shortly after my friend hal passed away and we kind of went out and had a a day in memory of hal and uh hung out and busted some sandies for the day sandies by the way are sand bass for those who don't know or white bass uh they look like little stripers basically And uh, we had a six-pack of beer, and uh, we dumped the last one out in Hal's memory. And uh, it was a good day. It was a good day. Um, Joe Pool, I can tell you, and then this is pretty specific to the location, but there's a hump out there called Fireman's Hump. There's another hump that's in that same area of the lake, but it's much closer to the marina side. And if you watch boats sooner or later, you'll find somebody out there with a marker buoy on that hump. That hump that's much, not, not fireman's hump, that's way off toward the far side from the marina, that's, that's much closer to, there's a, a second boat ramp inside, like you got the Oasis and their boat ramp, and then there's a boat ramp inside the park, and it's almost straight out from that boat ramp. And if you use your fish finder and you look for a hump, you'll find a hump out there. You'll be in 40, 50 feet of water. It'll come up to 18 feet and go back down. That hump is fantastic for sand bass. Um, I really, recommend you consider getting something like an iGuide trolling motor or iPilot is what's in the Minn Kota iPilot. Uh, it's probably worth the investment. This is a GPS trolling motor, and for people that want to fish sand bass, you can't throw an anchor and fish sand bass. So what happens is you're on the lake, you're drifting, and you're constantly using your trolling motor to get back over these humps. And uh, with the iPilot, you get your boat where you want it in relation to the hump, and you push the anchor button, and it keeps you within two meters of that spot. The motor, and it actually uses less battery because you're not motoring, you know, 25, 30, 40 feet back when you catch a fish and get distracted and things like that. Um, they're fantastic. So if you're going to be doing that, crappie can't help you. I just don't know much about crappie. I know a lot of people have done really well along bridge pylons, so you could try that. I know on Joe Pool, if you're at Lynn Creek Marina and you go out and you go under the bridge, way back 
to the left, out by where the pole line is, out toward the left side, far side of the, the lake, you'll find a really deep spot. You'll find what looks like a huge hump, and it's a brush pile, like an Aggie bonfire brush pile. that They, they built several of those on Joe Pool before they filled it in, and that's, that's a good spot for crappies too. But I, I really fish for catfish and sand bass. Um, one of the best techniques you can learn for catching sand bass is called Hellpet, H-E-L-L-P-E-T. If you're on fish, uh, Texas Fishing Forum, search for it there, you'll find it. And especially you take a, a lure called a Hellbender, and you take the hooks off of it. And a Hellbender is a deep-diving crankbait that'll run between 18 and 22 feet deep. And you take the little eye hook eyes off of it, and you epoxy them in so they don't come apart. You put a, a leader coming off the back end of it, about two feet back, and back there you put what's called a pet spoon. If you Google pet spoon, you'll find it. And it's like a mini downrigger. And you run your boat at about two miles an hour, which is pretty much just you know idle, with the just, just locked in on, the, uh, on, on most outboards. They'll kind of run you there, so just your first engagement, and let it run. And you let them out, usually with a bait casting rod. What we always did was let them out for a 22 count. So as the boat starts pulling away, you click the release, hold the spool, You let that line out, let it line out, count to 22, lock it, and you just troll that way. If you troll just outside the buoys where that bridge is at Lynn Creek Marina, right around there, that is a good spot to troll. There's a lot of other spots on the lake that I can't explain, can't get that deep into. But what you're always looking for is where these fish are going to suspend, and that's a suspend technique. So sand bass will congregate on humps when they're feeding. They'll congregate on points when they're feeding. But when the thermocline comes in later in the season, a lot of times those fish will suspend right at 18 feet. And they don't really do much. But they won't be in 18 feet of water a lot of times. They'll be in 22, 24, 26 feet of water. And they're just suspended right there at that 18-foot mark. But if you drag a flashy thing right past them, they'll reach out and snag it. And once you find them like that, so what we would do is if we had an area we thought might be good, we'd troll through it a couple times. If we didn't hit something, we'd go somewhere else. They're either there or they're not. You hit one. As soon as you hit one, you throw a marker buoy out. Okay? And then you come back and take another pass. And if you hit another one kind of a distance away from it, you throw another marker buoy out. And then all you do is just drive the boat back and forth around those marker buoys trolling. And what we would do as well is we would take the hellbender with the pet spoon, and we'd go about three foot back for the pet spoon, and about 18 inches back, put a little grub tail jig on it. So now you got your hellbender pulling a grub tail, pulling a, a pet spoon. And what would happen then is you'd be trolling through and you'd hear, feel something hit it and you'd just wait a second. And you'd almost always, there's another one. And we'd pull doubles in. And we'd have two guys with rods and one guy driving the boat. And every pass you're pulling in two fish to the point where you'd get a clicker, like a baseball counter clicker for your belt so that you didn't end up with too many fish in the boat and get busted by the rabbit sheriff. That's how effective that is. As far as reading your depth finders, I mean, that's something you learn in time. Remember, though, a lot of fish won't show up on depth finders. I mean, bigger fish and, and big schools show up. So you really want to focus more on learning to read structure. And a GPS is invaluable. And I think you need a dedicated GPS as a fisherman uh, that stays with and lives with your boat, or at least like a little handheld um, H2O, I think is the one I had. I think Garmin makes those um, where you can, you know, mark your your waypoints and your trails and stuff. And if you have that iPilot, once you have that location known to your iPilot motor, once you get close to it, you just 
you can store that information in that motor and have the motor take you there and then hit the anchor to hold there. And you can also tell that iPilot, you can teach it trails. So if you want to fish a shoreline, you can make, basically, you hit what's like a record function and stay, I don't know, 15 feet off the shoreline and drive the boat, the whole shoreline, and then save that path. And you take the boat back around and run that trail, and you just stand there and your boat just will go at the same speed, the same path that you went along that shoreline. So it's to me... That coupled with a good depth finder and a good GPS, that is that is like gold. It really is. Um, again, I would if you want if you fish grapevine, I would hook up with Omar. Uh, again, look look at the Irish. I will uh, see if I can find his website for you and put it in the show notes as well. And anybody in DFW area, you want a good guy to go out with on grapevine or Tawakany. If you go to Tawakany, you know he'll put you on stripers and hybrids as well. Uh, Omar Cotter, just excellent dude. This, this next one is just another one of those examples of when people say this is the freest nation in the world, I wonder what, what, what crack pipe you're hitting or, or what it is. How about this? Oregon censored. Fine man $500 for criticizing red light cameras without an engineering license. Yeah. Does the First Amendment apply to talking about math? That's the gist of a new lawsuit filed by Matt Jolstrom who was fined $500 by an Oregon agency after he suggested that the standard formula for timing yellow lights could be improved. Matt's interest in traffic light timing began four years ago when his wife got a ticket from a red light camera in Beaverton, Oregon. He soon became fascinated with the math behind traffic lights. According to Matt's, the formula behind timing for yellow lights was limited to driving straight through intersections. But the formula, which dates back to 1959, does not account for the fact that drivers slow down when making turns. As a result, Matt claims the formula is misapplied when used on turning lanes and snaring many guiltless drivers. According to investigation by local TV station KOIN6, Beaverton issues up to six times as many traffic tickets as similarly sized cities. In a display of civic engagement, Matt's emailed the Oregon State Board of Examiners for Engineering and Land Surveying in hopes they could help him raise public awareness and ask for their support and help to investigate and present laws of physics related to transportation engineering. He got the opposite. After curtly informing Matt's that they do not regulate traffic lights, the board warned him that without an engineering license from the state of Oregon, Matt's would be breaking the law if he ever referred to himself using the words engineer. Then the board launched an investigation into Matt's, which lingered for nearly two years and culminated in a $500 fine. According to the board, Matt engaged in unlicensed practice of engineering when he spoke publicly. Uh, when he spoke publicly, I'm sorry, about his critique and calculations for the yellow light formula. Moreover, only Oregon licensed professional engineers are allowed to use the word engineer to describe themselves. Okay, let's be clear. He didn't go out and, and, and market himself to the market as an engineer. He wrote them a letter and said, hey, I'm an engineer and I've gone through the math on this and this doesn't make sense. Now, this guy is an engineer. He might not be licensed as an engineer. Uh, in Oregon, but he is a, a, a professionally trained engineer who does engineering for a living. He's just not out, you know, selling his services as an engineer on the private market or the public market. And, you know, you can agree with his calculations or not, but to find the man because he said, hey, look, you guys shouldn't be doing this. I'm an engineer and I worked out the math and here's your problem. This is, you know, statism at its finest, really. It really is. And this is, this is preposterous. I held the job title at one time in my career, sales engineer, when I was in structured cabling. 
I don't have an engineering degree, but I was doing engineering level work in design and implementation of, of uh, uh, cable uh, cable infrastructure. And I eventually I, I ended up with a credential of RCDD, uh, Registered Communications Distribution Designer. Very, very difficult test to pass. We used to joke that it, what it really meant, though, was really can't do dick. It was just a credential. It meant you memorized a whole bunch of shit and you regurgitated and passed the proctored exam. That's all it meant. And some RCDDs really knew what the hell they were doing when it came to actually doing work, but some were completely just, you know, it was just another another certificate to put up, but if you handed them a, a box of cable and a bucket of jacks and said, here's a print, go install this shit, they couldn't do it. And there's just so much of that. And, and basically what this now is is the state controlling language. You're not allowed to say that you're an engineer even if you are an engineer. Because we license engineers and we decide who's an engineer and who's not. They basically elevated the term engineer to the same level of requirement as doctor. And that's even bullshit because there's people that can call themselves doctor that are not medical doctors. They just can't practice medicine. But they can say they're a doctor if they have a PhD. But is that, is that what's going to be next? Well, you can't call yourself a doctor unless we say you're a doctor. We're the state. This is Orwellian. This is the same kind of stuff we were talking about last week, changing the meaning of words. Because that's what this is really about. What What is an engineer by definition? Well, let's go read what the dictionary says, and we'll just stick to the noun definitions, because there's a whole bunch of verb ones, too. Let's see if any of the definitions of this word say, someone the state says is an engineer. Okay. Noun. One, a person trained and skilled in the design, construction, and use of engines or machines or in any of various branches of engineering, a mechanical engineer, a civil engineer. Okay? Don't see anything there since the state has to say you're an engineer. Two, a person who operates or is in charge of an engine. Hmm. <laughs> Three, also called locomotive engineer, railroads, a person who operates or is in charge of a locomotive. Hmm. Four, a member of an Army, Navy, or Air Force specifically trained in engineering work. Hmm. Digital technology, a person skilled in the design and programming of computer systems, like a software engineer or web engineer. Hmm. Six, a skillful manager, a political engineer. So... The dictionary doesn't say that the state has a monopoly on this word, but the state created a law with a piece of paper and said, we now have a monopoly on the use of this word as it pertains to calling yourself this word. I, I wonder how many people in Oregon have jobs with the title engineer in them that don't have the credential of a licensed engineer. I mean, if you start looking at how many job titles include the term engineer in them that don't require a degree in engineering, it's unbelievable. Again, I used to hold a job title with the word engineer in it. We had a gentleman on the show not that long ago who talked about getting into engineering without a, without, without a degree in engineering, let alone a license from the state. What this is, we don't like what you did, and we're going to be mean to you and make you go away and use force against you. And he's suing them. I hope that he wins. My, my concern is he's going to sue Oregon in a court run by Oregon. I, I don't know that you can get a fair shake that way. But I guess it's at least worth trying. But, you know, that's just, that's the whole America. That's what that is. Every time I hear shit like that, all I can hear in my head is, America! My America! I mean, 
come on. Do, do we, are we going to continue to lie to ourselves and, and, and continue to hold the big number one phone finger up and talk about how free we are? Or are we going to start pushing back? You know, the thing about being free is it requires, in the words of one of our founders, eternal vigilance. Freedom will immediately begin to decay the moment that it's taken for granted. And we've been taking it for granted for a little over 200 years now here in this country. You know, we've made some amazing progress, but we've had so much more egress. In fact, you got to realize that we live in a place that before we got here, the freest people that ever lived, lived here. The Native Americans were the freest human beings that ever lived. And we ruined it. And then we put it under the banner of freedom. I'm just saying. Don't buy into blind patriotism, folks. This is wrong. I, I, I hope that uh, if, if I lose sight of this one and there's any updates on it, and somebody sees it out there, kick it over to me and let me know what's happened with it. I'd like to know if this gentleman wins his lawsuit. All right, so the next one here is uh, from Tim in Indiana. It says, Jack, what is the optimal nut tree for human and animal food? Uh, details, I live in central Indiana, zone 5B. I'm wanting to plant some nut trees on my property. I currently have poor quality clay soil. I'm working to improvement. I have not decided at all on animal types. Will we'll be placed there yet? Currently, we have only chickens. I would like to plant multi-purpose trees as possible. Do you have any suggestions on the types of trees that might work best? Thanks, Tim in Indiana. Okay, so optimal. Okay, instead of worrying about optimal, how about we start out with possible? So whenever we're thinking about planting something in an area, we want to ask ourselves two questions. Will it survive? And will it eventually produce? So 5B Indiana with your, your photo period and your length of season. Uh, pecans will probably survive, and they'll tell you some of them are northern hardy pecans. They probably won't produce. They might. It's marginal, maybe. Okay. So pecans, we're just going to say they're out. Almonds are out. Um, you know, so how many other nuts do we have? Well, we have walnuts. We can either do Carpathian or black walnut. We have hickory nuts. We have hazelnuts. We have chestnuts. Now, hickories are related to pecans, and there's a thing called a hican or hican or hicken, depending on how, who's saying it. But it's basically a hickory-pecan hybrid, and it will probably work for you. And those are all valid choices. So then the next question becomes, which one is optimal? Which one do you like best? Because I'd worry more about myself than animals eating it. So if you really like walnuts, I would go with walnuts. Um, I don't dislike black walnuts. I don't hate black walnuts, but I sure hate opening them. Uh, they're just hard to shell. They really are. So I'd look at Carpathian walnut. Um, hazelnut is a great plant for your area. But it has its limitations in, in North America, and a lot of that's being worked on, but it certainly wouldn't hurt to plant some hazelnuts. Probably the best one for you to grow is Chinese chestnut. Um, and they do survive Zone 5. Uh, Mark Shepard just planted shitloads of them. He's got them grown in Zone 4, quite a bit further north than you, and producing pretty well. And there's a lot of different varieties of Chinese chestnut. Uh, they're highly resistant to chestnut blight that wiped out our chestnuts. They are a high-quality food. They're a dense carbohydrate nut crop. They're more of a carbohydrate crop than other nuts. Most nuts are more of a an oil and protein crop, so a fat and protein crop. Well, these are more of a store of carbohydrate, but that's good if you need calories. Uh, anything you can do with grain, you can do with chestnut. You can make chestnut bread. 
uh, of course, obviously, roasted chestnuts, etc. They are fantastic for finishing animals. You said you don't know what you're going to do with animals yet, but if we're going to bring pigs in, chestnuts are great. Now, the other thing that would be great if we're going to bring pigs in eventually is acorns. Because, I mean, finishing pigs on acorns is just a, a, an art that's as old as eating pigs. And, uh, no, they're not good for you, but they are, you know, there's some pretty fast-growing white oaks out there uh, that would be good to consider if you're going to do that. If you're going to do cattle, I would avoid acorns because we had cows eat acorns and you know, poison themselves from too much tannin. Uh, and they'll eat it, so you gotta, you got to manage where they are when mast is falling so that they don't you know, hurt themselves because it, it does happen. I, I was amazed in my limited experience with cattle how many ways a cow will try to kill itself. They'll try to kill themselves on uh, Osage orange uh, balls. They'll try to kill themselves on acorns. They'll try to kill themselves. I don't know how cows live. I, I really don't. Pigs, on the other hand, you killing pigs, you're doing something wrong unless it's time for them to die. Um, and walnuts, though, I, I don't know that they would eat walnuts, but they definitely eat hazelnuts and chestnuts. So, I mean, that, that's what you're really down to. You're, you're down to walnut, hickory, hazelnut, chestnut, and hickon, and possibly oak. Burr oak actually is a good oak for humans, but you're going to wait a long time before you get some. But when you do, you're going to get a lot. So you might even think about putting one or two big burr oaks in somewhere, put them somewhere they're not going to shade out your other trees. So none of them are better than others. It comes down to what's the best for your needs. Now, I would tell you if I had a big piece of land or even a moderate size, a piece of land my size, three acres in Indiana with clay soil, I would not be upset. I would be pretty happy. And I would, I would probably be doing a hazelnut, chestnut type arrangement. I think that's proven. Mark Shepard's shown that it works. It's high yielding over time. If you plant enough hazelnut, you can go through once every six years and just cut them to the ground and let them grow back. Uh, that's a real good way to kind of recharge them, make them last thousands of years. Uh, and you know, you're only cutting one sixth of your crop at a time. So the rest of it's all still producing. Um, it, that would be the way that I would go. When I got into fruits, I'd be looking at, you know, stone fruits that are hardy to zone five. There's some plums that are, that'll do that. Persimmon would be another. I would really look at bringing persimmon into that situation, uh, whether it be American persimmon or some of the improved persimmons. Uh, just plain old American persimmon, you know, they get really, really tall. They hold all those little persimmons way up in the tree and they drop really, really late in the year when everything else is gone. So it's a high, uh, food value drop late in the season. Uh, those would be other things I would look at. But my go-to would be chestnut. Chestnut, hazelnut. Uh, and I would definitely get some walnut in just because I know it's going to do good. Hickory, I could take it or leave it. Uh, I have had some hickens, which basically are like small pecans and are easy to crack. Those are cool. But most of like the shell bark, shag bark, et cetera, pig nut hickories, mocker nut hickories, like, the nuts are great. They're just so much freaking work to, uh, to get into. Anyway, let's, uh, let's take another one. Okay, so um, this one is from Alexander, Missouri. Here's what I said. Here's what he says. Hey, Jack, should I let the Environmental Protection Agency search and inspect my property? Details. I own a little over five acres of rural land with no building codes or zoning ordinances. All of my neighbors and myself are off-grid. We all use composting toilets and or outhouses because the cost of installing septic in our area is so high due to incredibly rocky ground. Fill your pain. Um, septic systems are not required if you own more than three acres of land, and composting toilets and outhouses are perfectly legal and Rural Missouri. 
I got an email today informing me that the Environmental Protection Agency is going to send an inspector to investigate everyone in the area to make sure we're disposing of our waste properly and not in any violations of federal law. If an EPA inspector shows up, should I let them on my land or tell them to get a warrant? Thanks, Jack. Sorry if I'm sending in too many questions. Alexander from Missouri. Um, what I, what I want to say is tell them to go pound sand. Here's the problem with that. Uh, the EPA has broad authority. You do not have to be suspected of a crime for them to obtain warrant. It is most likely the case going into rural Missouri to do this in mass that they probably already pulled some kind of a block warrant and they will have a warrant. If they do not have a warrant and the guy gets a hard-on over it because he wants to, to, to prove a point, the, the difficulty level for them to acquire a warrant for something like this, I looked into it, it's very low. It's pretty much they just ask for it and they get it. Because, you know, it's protecting, the, they can come up with any kind of bullshit. You know, we don't know if there's a problem. There could be a problem. It's a routine. And, and, and the danger of telling the guy to piss off if he doesn't already have a warrant is that if you make him go get one, it may piss him off and he might be looking for anything and everything. Now, there's no guarantee he's not going to be doing that anyway. So I, I think you either have to band together with all your neighbors and in, in, in one full swoop, all say you have no, no need to be here, you know, and, and try to do something legally to block them that way, or you're going to have to deal with it because whether you let them in the first time or the second time, from what I've read, they're coming on your land. Um, my, you know, it's like trying to want to believe that the average human being is a decent person. My guess is they're probably not going to be out looking to try to cause you a problem. They, they probably are trying to make sure that somebody doesn't have some cesspool that's just leaching off into the groundwater or something like that. Um, if you're using a composting toilet, I don't know what they possibly could find as being wrong. Um, if they don't like what you're doing, you know, it's just saying, I won't do that anymore. And getting one of those, you know, electric composting toilets should end that issue. Um, I, I don't really know how to advise you with this. I would tell you that talking to a lawyer now is probably a better idea than talking to a lawyer later. So you might want to look in your area, uh, find an attorney that has some knowledge of this type of situation, like environmental law, dealing with the federal government, et cetera, and get some legal advice. Is there anything you can do? If so, how should you proceed? Is there ways that you can limit what they have access to legally while they're on your property so you can comply with the request but keep it specific to the situation? See, I think that's your best bet. Because my problem with the Environmental Protection Agency types, like, well, we're coming here to make sure you're not throwing garbage away wrong. Oh, what's that over there? Oh, what's no, no, no. You don't need to worry about what all this other shit is. You're here to look at where I take a shit. Here's where I take a shit. Here's where it goes. Here's how it works. Got it? Good. Bye. How do you do that? How do you use... See, the big thing with bureaucrats is using the right words for their specific situation. That's how you control them. So I'm going to suggest you get some legal advice before this guy shows up. Um, because it, it may very well be that he's... Just, but again, when I, when I did some research on this, my understanding is that many times when they come out with some sort of blanket thing like this, they come with warrant in hand. So you say, well, you know what? You can come on my property when you have a warrant. Here, sir, here's our warrant. Here's our warrant. Or, oh, I see. Very well. And it's a couple phone calls, and they get a warrant. And then they come back with a police officer because they're afraid of you now. And they'll say that. We need to go serve this warrant. So they'll bring the sheriff with them or some shit like that. you know. And then they're pissed off. 
because you made them do that extra step. If you're airtight and you know there's nothing to worry about, you might want to do it. I mean, i got to tell you, again, I'd talk to an attorney here. I really would. Anybody that's been through this, I'd love to hear from you. That's the main reason I put on the show today uh, as the final segment of the show because I know somebody out there has had to have been through this. You're rocking along. You're in an unincorporated area. you got your outhouse, your compost toilet, whatever, and uh, you, you, you hear from the EPA, and they say they're coming to, ch- to check on what you're doing. And, and how did it work out? Because I've just heard so many, and I'm sure the reason that, that Alexander's asking this question is there's been so many stories about these people doing so many terrible things to people. And, and, and my hope is it really is the minority that most people think it is. But I'm seeing more and more of it, and I, I don't feel like it is as small an issue as some people want to write it off to be. Uh, I definitely want to be followed up with Alexander. You're not asking too many questions. Let me know what happens next in this. And, uh, Try to keep your cool in it because uh, government people are a lot easier to fight when you're calm and when you're assured of yourself and you know when they send things to comply. You're a lot of times better off saying, yeah, we've complied with that. I, I, I've been amazed sometimes in some situations where the government will come out, look at something and say, you have to do this, and the person will say, I'm not doing it. And, and end up, you know, 10 years of court battles and end up fined or in jail or something. When in many instances, the person just says, sure, we'll, we'll take care of that. And they'll say, well, we need a letter that says you've complied with it. They write them a letter and send it to them or whatever and, you know, take a picture of something that may not even really be what it's supposed to be. And then you never hear about it again. But when you pick a fight with the government, remember you're picking a fight with a bully with unlimited resources. So, so always in your dealings with the government, try not to pick a fight. Uh, unless it's strategic, like big things, big monumental changes sometimes, it's, it, it, it actually makes sense to pick that fight. You know, when you've got an organization behind you that's got your back and you're, you're trying to make a change for everybody, but when it comes to like being a small landholder, three or four acres, and, and just want a place to take a dump, don't pick that fight because they're going to make sure you lose. Or even if you win, it'll cost you more than it's worth to win. Uh, and they know that. I, I hate it, but it's the way that it is. With that, hey, if you like this show and the work that we do, consider supporting us. And one of the ways you can do that is uh, by so, uh, supporting us uh, by doing your sh- Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. What's tspaz? It's just a page on the Survival Podcast website, tspaz.com. You go there, you click a link, you get on over to Amazon, you do your shopping, and whatever you buy, we get credit for it. That's, that's how the affiliate program works with Amazon. Um, but I also do a review every day. And today's item of the day for review is a product called Sadoff Sumac. Sumac, like poison sumac. No, 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 no. Um, poison sumac is actually pretty rare from my experience anyway. The sumac that's across most, much of this country, and I've seen it, I've got grown on my property here, and I had it grown on my property in, uh, in Pennsylvania, so it's pretty diverse. Uh, staghorn or smooth sumac have red berries. And uh, they are useful as seasonings and as uh, additives. You can make lemonade out of them. I've made beer with it. I've made mead with it. It's good stuff. Um, and all red-berried sumac, in the United States anyway, and I think everywhere, is, is not poison sumac. Poison sumac, the berries hang down instead of point up, and they're white instead of red. Now, when you see regular sumac growing around here, the berries are pointing up, and they're still white or green because they're not ripe yet. That doesn't mean it's poison sumac either. If that tree eventually has those berries turn red, it's the sumac you can do all the stuff with. But this stuff, Sadoff, if you might imagine, that's a Middle Eastern name, um, is a sumac from 
the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern areas, and it's used in a lot of different foods. It's not exactly the same as our sumac. It's a different species in the same family. It's a lot like our sumac in that it is kind of uh, tart, kind of lemony tasting, but it's, it's different. It's got a different characteristic to it. It's used in a lot of recipes there. Dorothy and I first got turned on to this stuff when we discovered a recipe for something called carrot fries made with it, which is basically you cut carrots into sticks, and you coat them with a little bit of olive oil, give them, or peanut oil or whatever oil of your choice, give them a toss, and then you give them a good coating of sumac, salt, and pepper, and you throw them in the oven at 425 for 20 to 30 minutes, depending on your oven. And we do ours on a convection roast setting. They come out fantastic. So I started learning more about Middle Eastern cooking and things we use it in and some other recipes. And yesterday, I made lamb heart and lamb sausage stew. And the way this all came together, I went with Dorothy down to one of our customers called Burgundy Local that's in Fort Worth. And they sell pastured meat, pastured poultry, pastured lamb. They sell our eggs. They sell some other stuff from local producers. And uh, so I, I went down there with her, and she's like, well, do you want anything while we're here? So I started looking through, and they had, first of all, they had chicken hearts, which I haven't made their chicken hearts yet. And I'm like, yes, because usually at the grocery store you find livers, or you'll find a tub that'll say livers and hearts. There's like 20 livers in it and two hearts. I love hearts. Hearts are awesome. Chicken hearts, I'm going to do chicken hearts on skewers, grilled. I'm going to use this sumac on them. I think it'll be fantastic. Um, but I also got lamb heart while I was there. So I brought the lamb heart home. I cut it up, and I also went and got a pound of, 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 of grass-fed lamb grind, ground meat, and I made a lamb sausage. And in that lamb sausage, I used garlic and jalapenos and, you know, onion powder and some thyme and some uh, oregano uh, and some uh, rosemary and some fennel and some sumac. And I basically made that like a sausage. I put that overnight in the refrigerator and let it come together. And in the morning, I rolled it into basically small meatballs so just so it would be easy to cook because I wasn't going to case a pound of sausage. And uh, I browned the heart, and then I browned the meatballs. And I put all the, there's a link to the recipe. I put all this other wonderful stuff in it, some potato and some carrot and some celery and some onion and lots of garlic. And I made a lamb and lamb sausage and oyster mushroom stew. And I, I don't... I think it's a completely original creation. I've never seen anything quite like it. I've seen a lamb heart stew uh, done in a Moroccan restaurant. It was kind of my inspiration for it. But lamb heart and lamb sausage with oyster mushroom, I think that's really, it, it came out fantastic. And a big part of the flavor profile in that lamb sausage is the sumac. You want to give this stuff a try, it's 9 bucks for a 12-ounce container of it. So it's like 83 cents an ounce. It's not expensive at all. Uh, you can check it out again. It's made by Sanoff. And uh, when it comes to Middle Eastern stuff, it's it's odd, but Sanoff and Hoosier Hill Farms are the two places I found that seem to have the freshest and best stuff. And uh, this stuff, it, it claims it's made in America. Well, it's grown in Italy and, and uh, I think Italy and Lebanon are the two sources of it. But they actually get it over here in bulk and they bottle it, label it, and all right here in the United States. Um, and it, it's damn good stuff. And you can find it at tspaz.com if you click uh, see our reviews for the day or just go to the survivalpodcast.com and pull up the uh, most recent review. Remember, if you want to get an email every time I publish a, an episode or put up an item of the day or make a special announcement, subscribe to our email list. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click subscribe. You'll see a form there that you can fill out and get on our email list, and that will uh, make sure you stay informed about what's going on on a daily basis with the Survival Podcast. Um, this is a song, uh, or, I'm sorry, this, let's go ahead and do the song of the day now. This is a song I had never heard before. I know the band. 
but I just don't remember the song. I wasn't really big into stuff like this kind of music in the mid-90s. I'd kind of gone my way with country and was still listening to old classic rock and stuff like that uh, and my stuff from the 80s. But, you know, I occasionally got exposed to different bands. And the Foo Fighters, uh, I knew of them, and I knew uh, that David Grohl uh, had come over from Nirvana after Kurt Cobain's death. And apparently this was from their first album released in 95, and the song is called Big Me. And I've got some stuff for you about it on songfacts.com. It says, this song is about being dumped. Lee Food, uh, Lee Fu, uh, Dave Grohl broke it down. Girl meets boy, boy falls in love, girl tells him to F off. That's the whole point of the song. But the, the big thing, and this is why John Adam picked it, was the, the video. The video is a takeoff of a Mentos commercials. Mentos are mint candies that come in tubes. They're made in Europe, and the commercial had a campy feel. became a big part of pop culture in the U.S. In each spot, someone gets a moment of inspiration after eating a mint and is then able to overcome some obstacle. In one spot, a woman's car is boxed in, so she gets some burly construction workers to pick it up and move it for her. And another, a kid acts like a roadie to get in backstage of a concert. The video shows the band in similar situations solving problems with the aid of their own special candy called Futos. Unfortunately for the Foo Fighters, Mentos make great projectiles, and for years fans would throw candy at them when they played this song. It won the 1996 MTV Music Video Award for Best Group Video. It's a pretty cool song. I, I kind of I dig the sound of it and all. Um, and what John Adams said is they actually stopped playing this song at concerts because they were tired of getting Mentos thrown at them. And one guy said that they... Uh, They actually kind of hurt. Uh, they're like getting thrown little stones thrown at you. And um, uh, Grohl wrote this and many other songs on this album when he was still the drummer for Nirvana. Apparently, Kurt Cobain knew he wanted to pursue projects outside Nirvana and had no problem with it. I don't know if that's because he just didn't have a problem with it or because he knew he was going to shoot himself and it didn't matter anyway. I, I, I don't really know there. Uh, but they're a good band. And, uh, it, you know, you, you think of... This guy coming from Nirvana, but the band that he put together is is nothing like Nirvana. Doesn't to me it sounds nothing like completely a, a new direction and uh, good stuff. Hope you enjoy it. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the, uh, the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, even if they don't. Yeah.